from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Allison Kosick. I'm sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here is what you need to know. Wrangling with Warren, Democrats zero in on Elizabeth Warren in the fourth presidential debate. Against the odds, Huawei says it has turned a big profit year over year despite the trade war. And back for more, Warren Buffett wants to make a bigger bet on Bank of America. It's Wednesday, and this is First Move. Welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us. Let's begin with a check on the markets. U.S. futures are pointing to a lower open here on Wall Street after Tuesday's across-the-board rally. A weak reading on retail sales seems to be weighing on sentiment. Sales fell unexpectedly last month, down by 0.3%. Uh, August sales, however, were revised higher. Stocks rose in the previous session after a, pre after a pretty good start to the earnings season. Bank results came in mixed, but we got market-friendly numbers from Johnson & Johnson, United Healthcare, and United Airlines. Before the bell today, we got better-than-expected results from Bank of America, beating on the top and bottom lines, and its shares are higher in pre-market trading. Meantime, Brexit uncertainty is weighing on sentiment as key negotiating deadlines loom. We've got new trade concerns as well. China says it will retaliate against the U.S. if a bill supporting Hong Kong protesters is signed into law. China also made a surprise move today to shore up its economy. It injected $28 billion into the banking system to help boost liquidity. GDP numbers, they come out on Friday. They are expected to show weaker Chinese growth. All right, let's get to our drivers now. Moderate Democrats led the charge against Senator Elizabeth Warren at last night's CNN New York Times Democratic presidential debate in Ohio. Mayor Pete Buttigieg and Senator Amy Klobuchar went on the attack over who pays for Senator Warren's Medicare for All and wealth tax plans. Listen. Your signature, Senator, is to have a plan for everything except this. No plan has been laid out to explain how a multi-trillion dollar hole in this Medicare for All plan that Senator Warren is putting forward is supposed to get filled in. I appreciate Elizabeth's work, but again, um, the difference between a plan and a pipe dream is something that you can actually get done. We all have good ideas. The question is, how, who's going to be able to get it done? How can you get it done? And I'm not suggesting they can't. But I'm suggesting that that's what we should look at. And part of that requires you not being vague. Was she vague, though? Christine Romans joins me live. You know, what's interesting here is you've got this giant field of uh, possible candidates here. And, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren, the apparent sure. front runner here. And you have to really be... You have to really be ready to take the punches. Was she ready? Because I think they all came out, or didn't they? You know, the this, and this is what it feels like to be a front runner. This actually shows you how far she has risen in the polls, that she is more of a threat, and people are trying to break out at her expense. Was she vague? Well, the Washington Post calls this the question Elizabeth Warren won't answer. She has been asked in interviews, on the debate stage, by interviewers, on the stump, will you have to raise taxes for the middle class to pay for Medicare for all? And she doesn't specifically specifically answer that question. Now, to be fair, it's Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan that she supports. And Bernie Sanders says that 
yes, you might have to pay uh, more. Uh, taxes might have to go up for people for Medicare for all, but that your health care costs would go down. So, you know, there's a benefit, a net benefit overall. She doesn't go that far. Pete Buttigieg seeing an opening and calling it uh, Medicare for all who want it. He'd like people to be able to keep their private employer insurance, which is when you look at some of the polls, that's what a lot of the public thinks as well. But clearly it was the moderates on the stage and people who are not polling as high or raising as much money as Elizabeth Warren who were going after her on this this particular Medicare for all a subject, Allison. What was the biggest takeaway that you had from this three hour debate, Christine? Oh, I'm so glad you asked, because um, I've just written a piece about how the Democrats are going to have to be sharper on the economy and specifically on not letting the president brand the economy as his economy or they won't win. There's a Moody's Analytics uh, presidential uh, forecast model that was just rolled out yesterday. It's only been wrong once since they started doing this back, I think, in the 70s or 80s. And that was in 2016 when it failed to recognize that Donald Trump would be president. They've tweaked that model, that formula, into three forecasts instead of just one. And they find that if everything stays the same, you will have a second term of the Donald Trump presidency. That means the Democrats, if they want to win, they've got to figure out how not to fire at each other, aim their fire at each other, but, but you know, whittle down that crowd, but also start to chip away at the president's exaggerated branding of his personal uh, uh, re responsibility for the success of the American economy. Okay, Christine Roman, thanks for your analysis on that debate last night. Thank you. And Huawei is showing resilience to the U.S.-China trade war and the U.S.-led campaign against the company. The Chinese telecom giant has reported some surprisingly strong results. Claire Sebastian has more with us. She joins us live. Good morning, Claire. So what's interesting is everybody sort of thought that Huawei would really take a hit on sales and revenue after the U.S. put it on a list prohibiting uh, U.S. companies from selling technology to the company. So once again, the expectation was the company would have some trouble here it just doesn't look like that happened. No, Alison, uh, so far the numbers that we have show that they're, they're pretty resilient in the face of this. This is what we have uh, in terms of the numbers for the first nine months of the year. Uh, their revenue was about $86 billion. That's up 24% year on year. And their smartphone division, don't forget, they're the world's second biggest smartphone uh, maker as of uh, June this year. Smartphone shipments up 26% year on year to $185 million globally. Now, a word of caution there, we don't know how much of that is domestic within China and how much of that is global. The CEO did say in June that shipments outside of China were down 40% after the U.S. blacklisting. They are not a public company, Allison, so they get, they get to choose which numbers uh, they put out. But on the 5G side, they are still the world's biggest maker uh, of telecoms equipment. They, they, have, they say they now have more than 60 commercial 5G contracts to date. That's, that's at least 10 more since they last uh, announced numbers in July. So they continue uh, to grow there. But as I say, this may not be the whole picture. They get to select which numbers. And of course, this is the first nine months uh, of the year. They only uh, were put on the U.S. blacklist in May. So it doesn't actually show the full effect necessarily coming down yet. There could be more to come in terms of trouble for Huawei. Yeah, so what is Huawei saying it's going to do to sort of soften the blow since, you know, the biggest impact of the sanctions has yet to really be felt? Right. So a couple of things. They've been stockpiling uh, technology from U.S. customers that they may now uh, not be able to do business with. They've been developing their own technology. They rolled out their own operating system, Harmony OS, Harmony, uh, amid the, the discord uh, in August. Uh, they say that that will be a replacement uh, for Android. The, uh, the U.S. blacklist prevents them uh, from putting the full version of Android 
on new phones. Uh, and honestly, Alison, they continue to show real strength uh, in 5G. They, uh, they're particularly strong in Europe. They just uh, announced this week, uh, you know, several deployments with Swiss Telecom's uh, maker Sunrise. Uh, and part of that may be the price. You know, I've spoken to a rural carrier here in the U.S. who says that Huawei's technology uh, is about a third to half the price of competitors, Nokia and Ericsson. So they continue uh, to undercut their competitors uh, on price. And that is where they continue to show strength. But a lot of uncertainty still to come. Of course, Huawei was not part of uh, the recent trade uh, truce announced between the U.S. and China. So we don't know uh, if the current waiver on U.S. companies doing business with the company will be extended. That expires in mid-November. Okay, Claire Sebastian, thanks so much. The British Prime Minister updates his cabinet on Brexit this hour and in, as intensive talks with Europe are continuing, both sides are pushing to outline a deal ahead of Thursday's crunch summit. The pound is higher this week on hopes of a breakthrough. Haras Gold joins me live now. Gosh, you know, these, me these meetings seem like they're moving at a frenzied pace, moving parts all over the place, a lot of unknowns. And the reality is these talks could really run right into Thursday's European Union summit. Allison, that's exactly right. There's a lot of moving parts, including a lot of moving meetings. We are expecting any moment the UK cabinet to come into number 10 Downing Street behind me for a meeting that was actually moved up. It was supposed to be a few hours ago. They've moved it up at the last minute. At the same time, an important meeting in Brussels between EU ambassadors was also pushed down. So there's speculation that something might be introduced to the cabinet here and then perhaps introduced to the EU ambassadors in Brussels. Things are changing, it seems, here by the minute as the hours tick down into the very important EU Council meeting in Brussels, where ostensibly the idea is to get to an agreement where the EU countries and the UK will agree on this divorce settlement before Boris Johnson can bring it to the parliament on Saturday, where he hopes to get it passed. But that will also be a tall order because we are hearing some resistance from the Northern Ireland party. This is the party that props up Boris Johnson's government. They seem to be still unhappy with some elements of the deal. If they fall apart, then also the support of some of the more hard right-wing, uh, hard Brexit tears of the party may also fall as well, and that could potentially ruin any sort of majority that Boris Johnson could hope to get that deal through. According to the law that was recently passed, Boris Johnson must ask for an extension to the Brexit deadline if he does not get a deal through Parliament by Saturday that will extend Brexit until January, Alison. So what seem to be the focal points now, the points of contention that really seem, that both sides seem to be harping on? It still is all about how Northern Ireland will be treated in this Brexit situation and trying to avoid a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Right now, the main sticking point seems to be about customs, about taxes, and about the consent, the idea that the Northern Irish Assembly would be able to have a veto power over any sort of agreement. That is not something the EU wants. But there's also a question of just, just how would this realistically work? How would we be able to treat Northern Ireland that will stay part of the UK? How would we be able to treat goods that go into there any different? than goods in the UK and goods to the rest of the EU. Because there's a question, for example, Alison, of let's say Northern Ireland imports sugar from somewhere, turns it into a soft drink, and then export it somewhere else. Depending on where all those products are coming from and where they are made, that could affect some of these customs taxes. These are very, very complex situations on top of a very complex political reality as well. Oh, lots of twists and turns. Hadass Gold, thanks for keeping track of all of it for us. 
And these are uh, the stories making headlines around the world. In the impeachment inquiry, a senior State Department official told congressional lawmakers that he raised red flags about Rudy Giuliani's efforts to pressure Ukraine more than six months ago and was told to lay low as a result. Today, another official who unexpectedly resigned last week will share his story with impeachment investigators. The family of a British teenager killed in a road crash involving the wife of a U.S. diplomat met with President Trump at the White House. But Harry Dunn's mother said they declined an opportunity to meet with the woman involved because they said they wanted the encounter to take place in the U.K., where the crash occurred in August. The woman left Britain for the U.S. after the crash under diplomatic immunity. Vice President Mike Pence and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo are heading to Turkey to meet with President Erdogan to try to broker a ceasefire in northern Syria. Mr. Erdogan says he won't meet them until Thursday. The Turkish offensive began after President Trump surprised his own military by ordering the immediate withdrawal of U.S. troops. CNN's Arwa Damon is live on the Turkish-Syrian border with the latest. Arwa, what are you learning now? Well, that meeting is supposed to help negotiate some sort of a ceasefire, or at least that is what the U.S. delegation's objective is. But we've already heard what President Erdogan's reaction to that proposal is quite simply no, and that his country will not negotiate with terrorists. Look, from Turkey's perspective, the fact that the Americans want to negotiate a ceasefire between the Turks and the YPG, which they consider to be a terrorist organization, would be as if someone were to tell the U.S. at the height of the battle against ISIS to just pause for a second and go to a negotiating table. That's how strongly the Turks feel about the existential threat that the YPG does pose. And then and there's the reality that the U.S. has basically sidelined itself after the White House decided to withdraw U.S. troops from northern Syria, which then caused the Kurds to be forced to turn to the regime in Damascus and the Russians to protect themselves, as they were saying, from uh, this Turkish push forward. And now we have significantly changed dynamics on the ground, and there's not a seat at that table for the United States. Uh, you have right now in northern Syria, key players being the Turks, obviously, the Arabs that are fighting alongside them, those rebel forces. You have the YPG and you have the Syrian regime. And it's only the Russians who, is talking, who are talking to all of these parties. Russia experts are saying are both the playmaker and the kingmaker. It is Russia, presumably, that is going to be uh, negotiating some sort of a deal. But meanwhile, in a number of areas, the battles do still continue. Like behind us, that's the town of Ras al -Ain. And it's been uh, pretty intense there throughout the better part of the day. We've been hearing sporadic noises of fairly intense uh, gun battles, explosions. And now you can see those uh, thick plume of dark black smoke. And there are other parts of northern Syria as well, where it's the Russians who are stepping uh, in between the army of Damascus, the army of Bashar al-Assad, and then the Turkish and their uh, Syrian rebel proxies on the ground. And so when we look at the big picture in all of this, it's going to be quite interesting to see what sort of leverage the U.S. thinks it has or how it can even begin to convince the Turks to go to some sort of a negotiating table, given how little power and credibility America now has.
Yeah, never mind that the U.S. has literally left the building. They've left the country. Uh, that delegation arriving uh, later today. CNN's Arwa Damon, thanks so much for your reporting. Still to come on First Move, banking on Main Street, America's second biggest lender, gets a reassuring boost from consumers. And not so chill. Netflix reports for the last time before the streaming wars heat up. I will be speaking with the company's co-founder. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. It's still looking like a lower open for U.S. stocks after Tuesday's across-the-board gains. The Dow begins today's session above 27,000 again. It is just 1.2% below all-time highs. And we're looking at tech stocks just about 2% away from records. Before the bell, we got results from Bank of America, the second biggest bank in the U.S. Earnings and revenues beat estimates on solid loan growth, but lower interest rates continue to weigh on results. Matt Egan joins me live now. So uh, we're seeing the start of Q3. It's definitely not the gloom and doom that we saw everybody predict, at least so far for the banks. But is this the case if we're just getting started, don't get too excited? Maybe, Allison. We'll see. But you know what? Let's take it for now. It's so far so good. The banks have been a lot better than feared. And we saw that again this morning with Bank of America, which is trading higher pre-market on this earnings beat, revenue beat. I think there's two really important things to highlight from Bank of America's results. One, the bank managed to narrowly grow its lending profit from a year ago. And that's despite the recent plunge in interest rates, which has obviously been great for borrowers, but it's really painful for banks. During the call, the CFO said that Bank of America is standing by its outlook for lending profits for the rest of the year. The other really important thing out of Bank of America's report is that the bank is lending a lot, despite all these concerns about the economy. Bank of America reported a 6% increase in business loans and leases, and it also reported a 7% jump in loans in its consumer business. During the conference call, the CEO, Brian Moynihan, he talked about his outlook for the economy. And he said, listen, despite these worries about the trade war and weaker business spending, he thinks the economy is still in solid shape. Now, Bank of America's Wall Street business was a little bit more mixed. Uh, trading revenue was roughly flat. Um, the investment banking business was a lot stronger. It reported a 27% increase in fees, and that was driven by more M&A and debt underwriting as well. So all in all, Allison, not a bad quarter for Bank of America, nor for the banking industry overall so far. And Bank of America in focus for Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, which made a big bet on Bank of America. And now they're asking for even more. Give me more details. Well, it's, it's no secret that Warren Buffett is a big fan of large American brands and big financial services companies. And so Bank of America is both of them. So it should not be a, a big surprise that uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway recently requested approval from the Federal Reserve to increase its stake in Bank of America up from around 10% now. Um, there's no guarantee that Berkshire will in fact buy additional shares, but it is noteworthy that uh, Warren Buffett is seeking Fed approval. And you know, it is already, Berkshire's already the largest shareholder in Bank of America. It's also the biggest shareholder in American Express where it has an 18% stake. It's also the biggest shareholder in Wells Fargo despite that bank's problems. So I think it's a Another sign that Warren Buffett likes this sector. 
Absolutely. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. And joining me now with his thoughts on the markets and earnings season, Art Hogan. He is the chief market strategist at National Securities Corporation. Good morning. Good morning. And now that we're sort of a little bit into our toes in the water for Q3, you know, as I said before, there, there's just a lot of there was a lot of doom and gloom about, a, a, you know, a third quarter in a row of uh, lackluster earnings. What's your take on how things are going? Yeah, a couple things. So first and foremost, we have to remember all of our earnings are compared to how we did a year ago, right? So a year ago, we had spectacular earnings because we had a new tax code, a new corporate tax code. So it's unrealistic to think that we're comping against the, the three quarters, the first three quarters of 2018 when we had 20% earnings growth, it's very difficult. So having earnings growth is important. I think the, the second thing is the economy is, is back to trend line, which is two to two and a half percent versus the 3% or 2.9% that we saw in 2018. So that kind of economy is able to drive earnings growth in low single digits. And I think we're gonna see that again. The S&P 500 had about 3% earnings growth last quarter. We'll probably have a similar type of earnings growth. I think it's going to be driven in large part by technology, uh, for example, as a, as, a, as a high point, and energy will be the low point. Energy companies are still struggling to make money in this commodity uh, environment, and I think that uh, when we think about what we sh how we should react to earnings, it's much more of a you know, where are investors over-invested and where the biggest disappointments might come. And my fear is that's in those defensive trades. I think companies that are the consumer staples, companies like utilities, some of the real estate investment trusts that are so crowded because they have healthy dividends are going to disappoint investors on the earnings line because they just have multiples that are historically high. Okay, when you say disappoint, do you mean like a bubble bursting disappoint? No, just I think realistically saying, should I be paying 20-something times for a staple company that's growing its revenues at about five or six percent. So that kind of revenue growth, attracting that kind of multiple because of its dividend yield, I think is going to rationalize some of that investment in that space. So we know for the last three years, we've seen the consumer staples, certainly the, the utilities and, and, and a large part, a lot of the REITs have historically high multiples and lower and lower dividends. And I think as investors look at this and say, what do I really own here? And, and does it make sense for me to own this at 20 to 25 times when I think there's a lot of value in, in some of the technology world? Okay, speaking of the broader market, you know, we're seeing stocks close to record highs, if not at highs. Um, is this, now is this a bubble in itself considering, uh, you know, we've got the China-US trade war underway. We've still yet to get a resolution. Uh, is this sort of the build up to the big fall? I don't think so. I think that incrementally the news on U.S. China trade has gotten more constructive. It feels like both sides want to get something accomplished here. It's, you know, this is 18 months into this this battle and the, and the latest of the news. Certainly feels like both sides would like to accomplish something. I think at the very least we have a truce with China for the time being, and that and, and markets can breathe a sigh of relief because that manifests itself in less uncertainty. We're not afraid that new tariffs are gonna be put on. We're not afraid of escalation, at least right now. I think that makes sense, and I think that'll become even more the case as we really get into the presidential election cycle. I don't think this is an administration that wants to be in a recession or fighting a trade war while running for re-election. My guess is we're gonna see choreographed news around US-China trade get even better as we head into next year. So this is a market that's actually getting used to the trade war at this point. That's what it feels like. Yeah, it? well, it gets used to it when it's static, when it's dynamic and there's a lot of uncertainty, when there's deadlines and, and tariffs are supposed to go up like they were yesterday and, and new tariffs are supposed to be put on in December. That's when the market is upset, right? The month of May was entirely down because of the U.S.-China trade war. The month of August was a sawtooth pattern because of the going back and forth on where we stood on trade. I think the rest of this quarter is probably going to be much more of a, hey, here's the U.S.-China trade war. We can compartmentalize that. We know where we are, but it's not getting worse. And then the market can 
focus on things like earnings like we're supposed to. Okay, Art Hogan uh, from National Securities Corporation, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Okay, and opening bell is up next. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Move. I'm Allison Kasich. We are live from the New York Stock Exchange, and that was the opening bell, as expected. Uh, we've got a lower open for U.S. stocks as the market digests some of Tuesday's solid gains. News that U.S. retail sales fell for the first time in seven months could raise some new concerns about the health of the U.S. consumer. Retail sales fell 0.3% last month, although some of that was because of lower gas prices. Meantime, investors have liked what they've seen so far from earnings season, but major tests remain this week. Netflix and IBM report results after the closing bell today. Time now for a look at our global movers. Bank of America shares are higher. The second biggest bank in the United States posted a third quarter profit drop of 21% as lower interest rates weighed on results. But earnings and revenues beat Wall Street estimates. United Airlines shares are rising. The company's third quarter earnings beat estimates by a full 10 cents a share. United is also raising its full year guidance as passenger bookings remain strong. Shares of General Motors are higher. It is day 31 of the UAW strike. GM CEO Mary Barra joined contract talks yesterday. Union leaders meet tomorrow in Detroit. It's a sign that a preliminary deal could be getting closer. The big challenge will be getting the rank and file to sign off on any deal. Volvo is unveiling its first ever electric vehicle later today. The Swedish car maker is embarking on a road to lower carbon emissions as it aims to become a climate neutral company by 2040. The CEO of Volvo Cars, Hawken Samuelson, joins us live now. Good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. Nice being with you. Talk us through some of the details of Volvo's all-electric car. It's our very first electric car and of course a very important step towards electrification we are aiming for and we will release now another car every year. But this first one is a small SUV. I think it's a very attractive car, especially for the U.S. market. And it will, of course, be environmental friendly, all electric, but also have some other attractive features. For example, it has an all new Android operational system. So I think we'll really have a state-of-the-art uh, infotainment system in the car and uh, of course you can drive environmental friendly with this car but I think also people appreciate the very good response uh, very silent car and uh, not at least you can fuel it at home I think that's something our customer will, will appreciate you don't need to go to a gasoline station you can plug it in overnight and I think that's something really attractive What's the range of the car before you need a new charge? Uh, it will be, we're still not certified, but it will be more than 400 kilometers. So now I have forgotten your miles, but you can convert it more than 400 kilometers. So I think it's enough for, for the daily usage. So normally you will charge it at home. And I think that's how you will use an electric car. 
Okay, you're also making a pledge to cut carbon emissions by 40% by the year 2025. How exactly are you planning on doing that? Yeah, that is really, we are really going to do this in the same way as we have worked with safety. I mean, we don't do any add-on programs uh, to look good or so. We, we believe sustainability should be exactly as safety, will be part of the company DNA and, and will be a way uh, to improve our business and to be more profitable long term. So it's part of our purpose. That has worked with safety, so we uh, see that will work very well also with the planetary safety or contributing to climate neutral planet and and uh, we will do that with electric cars but we will also do it uh, short term with the, all of our plug-in hybrid cars which we will rebrand the uh, recharge and we will sell next year or already the next year 20 percent of, of our cars will be plug-in hybrids so we'll take a big step there plus we will of course work also with our supply chain to encourage our supplier also to be carbon free so that's a very ambitious uh, move forward just in general. But how difficult is it to grow and produce these kinds of vehicles in an age where uh, tariffs are running rampant and the, the China-U.S. trade war is still in full force? Okay, we have some uh, headwind, of course, on the market, but so far we are quite successful. We are growing in the U.S. and, uh, of course, this car will uh, be very attractive to customers. Of course, uh, in some markets there will be incentives, but uh, everywhere I think the operational cost will also be an improvement. This car is will be lower cost to operate than fueling it up with conventional gas. So we have to think uh, long term. Of course, short term, the fuel price development now is maybe giving us a bit of headwind because they're very low, but uh, we need to think long term. And then we are quite sure that uh, we should make our cars sustainable and electric. And uh, that's what we're initiating now. And that's why we have this bold plan. plan. Have the tariffs hurt Volvo's profitability? Pardon? Have the, uh, the tariffs hurt Volvo's profitability? I mean, we, you have to see this exactly as safety. I mean, you, you could, of course, org also argue a car without uh, airbags and without side uh, impact protection and so on would be a cheaper car and could be seen as more profitable. But we are quite sure it is not that is not the case. So we have to make a sustainable car and an environmental friendly car. It will, of course, short term cost a bit more with the equipment, batteries and e-motors. But long term, we are quite sure this will contribute to a higher growth and, and a long term better profitability. This is part of our business concept long term. Okay, well, I'm excited to see this new vehicle. Hawkins Samuelson, thanks so much for your time, the CEO of Volvo. Thank you. Up next, Netflix has been losing first subscribers, then friends. Can it win the streaming wars? I'm going to be discussing all that with the company's co-founder soon. Grab your popcorn, settle down to watch Netflix tonight. Third quarter earnings, they're coming out too. They promise to be a riveting watch. These are the last numbers from the streaming giant before the November launch of competitors, uh, everybody from Apple to Disney. For more on what the future holds for Netflix, 
Uh, I'm joined by the company's co-founder. He's also the author of the new book, That Will Never Work, and it's about the early years of Netflix. Mark Randolph joins me live now. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. A pleasure to be with you. And you're obviously no longer with Netflix, something to keep in mind as we talk. Uh, I'll tell you what, this is a fantastic book for anybody who wants to read it, who wants to know how Netflix came to be, but also it's inspirational, you know, for anybody looking to, to start a company, thus the name That Will Never Work. And uh, I was listening to your podcast and you said your wife said it this way. She said, that'll never work. And you pretty much said, watch me. And you did make it work, didn't you? You know, I think now is an especially good time to revisit the fact that Netflix actually did start out as essentially nothing. When we pitched the original crazy idea of video rental by mail, it's true. Everyone, including my wife, said that will never work. And it is as amazing to me as it is to anyone else where we've seen Netflix get to today. But it's also a lesson in how there's a need for companies, especially com companies that just start from scratch, on how to reinvent the company depending on how times change. So we saw Netflix do this, going from DVDs to streaming, went through some growing pains in doing that. But now there's a bigger hurdle for Netflix. And I know you're not with the company anymore, but how does a company like Netflix, which is still extremely dominant in this area, deal with so much competition? Well, the first thing I'll say is that I think the competition is healthy. Healthy not just for the companies, but certainly for the consumer. I mean, in many ways, we're entering this golden age of television. And I mean, I certainly don't only watch Netflix. I enjoy the fact that there's so much great content being created. But I think if you're to look at what's happening today, you can't help but go back to the very beginning. As you mentioned, I can't comment on the tactics, the strategies, since I'm not intimately familiar. But the thing I know well is the Netflix culture. And I can tell how that culture began, and I can see how those exact same things about how Netflix acts like a startup all the time are exactly the same kind of things we're going to see it doing as it comes into a much more aggressive phase. So will it have to continue to reinvent itself? For instance, it's, it's based its strengths on original content, and that kept Netflix afloat for so long. But now it's losing you know, big shows like Friends in the Office. So how can Netflix sort of reinvent itself again? So one of the things Netflix is famous for is being willing to leave the past behind in exchange for doing what's right in the future. And I saw that time and time again. I talk about in the book, at the very beginning, we actually sold DVDs. And it was at one point 98% of our revenue. But we were willing to walk away from all of that, to cut our revenues down 98% in order to focus on everything that was going to be the future. And Netflix did that again when it moved away from shipping DVDs into streaming. It was willing to walk away from the large, successful part of its business in order to make sure it had the future right. And now, of course, we're seeing this different phase where it's recognizing that proprietary content and, and um, single-owned content is the key to the future. And you're going to see Netflix go all in on this. And I think they're recognizing they're still at the beginning of these streaming wars. That, in fact, there's still a huge market ahead of us that in terms of the penetration of the streaming companies, we're at the beginning. And I think they're willing to do what it takes to be successful going forward, no matter what the, no matter what the impact is on their past business. But does there need to be new thinking at Netflix since there are new obstacles headed Netflix's way? For instance, should it be time for Reed Hastings, the current CEO of Netflix, to leave, you know, to bring in some new thinking on how to tackle what's ahead? Well, 
I certainly would hate to see Reed go. I mean, I've known Reed since well, well before we started Netflix and had a chance to work with him very closely. And I can confidently say he is one of the most powerful and wrong word, most successful uh, entrepreneurs I've ever seen. And what's extremely rare about Reed is that not only is he very successful as an early stage entrepreneur, he's as good or better when it gets to be this large global chess game that uh, streaming has become. I think Reed is the exact right person to continue to lead this company. What's the one takeaway you want readers who, who read your book to walk away with? So I want this to be in some ways be the untold story of Netflix, that if you really want to understand what Netflix is and where it's going, you have to understand the past. You have to understand the origins of this famous Netflix culture. You have to see how it was a startup, how it made decisions, how it was willing to leave the past behind for the future, and how those exact same things are going to be what drives its behavior going forward. Okay, Mark Randolph, it's been great talking with you. I can't wait to dig into the book even more. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, after the break, one frustrated homeowner struggling to update her home spotted a gap in the market. And now she's reshaping the remodeling business. Her story is next. Here's today's boardroom brief. The European Commission is telling Broadcom to stop applying exclusivity deals with six of its main customers. The order comes after EU competition chief Marguerite Vestager launched an antitrust investigation in June. The U.S. shipmaker said it would comply with the order but is launching an appeal in European courts. Shares in ASOS are up more than 20% after the firm said operational issues are behind it. ASOS says it's made substantial progress towards fixing warehouse problems, which caused profits to slump 68%. The online fashion retailer is working to move from a UK-focused to a global model. Now to a homeowner who was sick of the pitfalls of do-it-yourself, who took it upon herself to rip apart and rebuild the home remodeling industry. House helps homeowners redesign their homes using augmented reality and connects them with design and construction professionals who carry out the work. Sounds like a dream. House estimates this is a $1.2 trillion opportunity in North America and Europe. Its platforms attract 40 million users every month, which showcase the talents of more than 2 million home remodeling experts. The CEO and co-founder says it was born out of frustration when she tried to renovate her own home. It was very hard to find the relevant people that will be able to execute the dream that we had in our head over yeah. here um, and, and make it a reality, right? You pretty much had some uh, b referrals by word of mouth from other people, but not necessarily getting to the relevant people that would be the relevant for your style and, and budget and everything. So it starts there. Then how do you communicate? Right? How do you translate if you don't have the verbiage, if you are not the expert? Um, so finding the pros, explaining to the pros, communicating to them. So that's one side of the equation. What about the pros? They, they felt the same. They were very narrow to whoever they knew in Where their network, the right? And, and that was pretty much it. And all of a sudden, when you put a platform 
as a center and everybody can see everybody and it's very visual. Now, pros can get to the relevant clients, client can get to the relevant pros, but the whole process, start from to finish, is very different because you get the ideas, you find who you want, now you know how to execute and with who. How do you make money? Because there is a click to buy feature on the website. To your point, it is very visual here. You're clearly collecting a lot of data about what people are looking at, how they want to achieve the remodeling that they're doing. So where are the financial benefits here to you? Where, where do you make money? So, so as I said, House was built as a platform, not as the business originally, yeah. but the magic of House is its community, right? That's the big difference. So we brought the technology to the industry and now homeowners like us and all these professionals come there. Professionals pay us in order to expand their business, build their brand locally, be in front of the relevant homeowners. They also pay us for our SaaS so they can use the software to manage their business. We have Ivy and they can basically um, manage everything from start to finish with the client using the platform. And of course they can use the platform, you mentioned the product, to source based on what the clients is showing them, the visuals that they like and, and the products that they like. And homeowners, of course, come to the platform to get the ideas, to find who they want, and they can also pay directly for products. So there is a lot of synergy between both sides, and we basically monetize based on what the community wanted from us. They wanted ability to professionals build their brand and expand um, the reach, and the homeowners wanted to see more and to find the relevant people. And the same for ideas, the same for products. It's just end-to-end -end solutions for both sides. Do you want to go public? Do you want to be standing on that balcony behind us one day? <laughs> or are you open to being bought by somebody, perhaps? Home is such an important thing for people, including to us. And that process was so far away from that dream. So technology was needed. Um, the community definitely helped. We were very fortunate to be there at the right time in the right place in the Silicon Valley to go and put it together for right. everybody. But the goal was not public, private, sell, not sell. The goal was if we do it, we do it all the way and we make sure that we serve the community, we let the business follow what is really needed and we do it right as much as possible. Of course, along the way, you, you wonder, you test, you try, but, but that's the whole thing. And for me, the goal is to create something that for many generations to come, people will be able to enjoy the process and professionals will be able to thrive while building magnificent businesses on house. I have to say, if you've not raised money since 2017, the evidence perhaps suggests that you're uh, profitable enough at least. You to be said, investing, you said, you're guessing, but, but again, I, this, we're very, very focused on, on yeah. building what's right for our community, developing the technology. We do see that it makes a huge difference. Um, mm. Augmented reality, for example, we just released a tile feature. Do you know that if you build a bathroom or a kitchen and you want tile, historically what would you do? You would go to a showroom and try to figure out how much you need yes. and what you buy and how it's gonna look like. Well, guess what? With the tool you can basically, in your kitchen or in your bathroom, put the tile specifically, turn it, all, all directions, measure how much you need, put it in your cart and send it to your house. So these type of wow. things, these type Make of technologies, 11x more likely to purchase once you see it with the different materials you already have in your house, measure it and purchase it. Advice, finally, to any entrepreneur, find a great idea, 
find a great idea that you are truly passionate about and you think that you're going to love being in that journey, working on that thing, not because you want to exit, as you call it before, or sell it or take it public, because you're truly going to enjoy the journey and every single day. It's going to be crazy roller coaster with highs and lows. But if you enjoy what you do and you're passionate about what you do, that will carry you through the process. It doesn't, you're not going to look for an outcome. You're going to enjoy what you're doing day to day. And I think follow, following your love is always the best advice you enjoy can give everyone. Journey. Enjoy the journey. Before we go, a final check on the markets. Looks like a lower open for U.S. stocks as the market digests some of Tuesday's solid gains. Uh, we got some news that U.S. retail sales fell for the first time in seven months. It's happening in September, so it's raising concerns that the consumer may be pulling back on spending. And we have just begun third quarter earnings season, starting with some of the big banks. Uh, we heard from Bank of America this morning. This is the second biggest bank in the U.S. Earnings and revenues of Bank of America beating estimates on solid loan growth, but lower interest rates continue to weigh on Bank of America's results. We're going to be watching for corporate earnings after the bell today. We're going to be hearing from Netflix and IBM, so keep an eye on those stocks. And that's it for the show. Thanks for watching. I'm Allison Kosick. You've been watching First Move. Connect the World starts after this short break. Have a good day. The world needs to know Brazil by Brazil. We believe in sustainability, preserving over 60% of our native vegetation. We have the world's most impressive biodiversity with over 100,000 animal species and 40,000 plant species. Over 70% of our energy sources are clean and renewable through hydroelectric, solar, and wind power with aggressive growth plans. Meet a new Brazil that is committed to renewable energy. Meet Brazil. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.